this episode, I chat with Tavana Givens about dealing with racism, poverty, and widowhood. Learn the tools and tips she's used to build her confidence and resilience, and how she supports other widows on their journey to healing. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Tavana Givens, a life coach and host of the Hungry Widow podcast. Throughout her life, she has dealt with poverty, racism, fat shaming, and at the age of 38, her world shifted when her husband died of complications related to H1N1. She now shares her story in service of others to help them regain their confidence, resilience, and start over again. Raising two boys on her own and based in Washington, Tavana works with other women to learn how to manage grief and create new possibilities with life while honoring the past. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Melanie. This is such a pleasure. So excited to chat with you. You and I go back to the Lola retreat days and have been you know, connected over the past few years. And I'm super excited to connect with you on this platform. Yes, me too. Me too. Did we meet in Lola, Seattle? Yes, that okay. was where we first met in Lola, Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. That was over two years ago. That is so wild. I know. I know. That was, yeah, that was where we met two years ago. And that was so much fun. So much fun. I love Lola Retreat. I'm so glad that you were there. And it's always a pleasure to meet people in person. And that's been one of the great benefits of doing a live event is meeting all the different people that come from various parts of the country and the world and having you there was such a blessing. And I'm so grateful to add you to my network of peers and friends. And I'm super excited to chat about your story, which I know has a lot of difficulties, but so many things of service that can help other people. So as I mentioned in your bio, you said that you've experienced poverty and racism. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story and how these experiences have impacted your mental and financial health. Sure. Yeah. So I was raised by a single mom. So there was uh, three of us in total. I'm the oldest of the three. And in terms of poverty, our family had no money. When I say no money, like no money, like my mom was on public assistance for many, 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 many years. And so we had very, very little money to work with. And, you know, we're on like lived in public housing. So my first experience with racism that I can remember was very early on when I was in kindergarten. I specifically remember being the only black person in the classroom 
And then I remember there was um, some art project or something that we had to do. And I remember the teacher saying that um, she didn't have any supplies for me. And I remember my mom coming mm. up to the school, like after school, or even it might have even been during the school time, probably during with my mom. And I remember her and the teacher like having some type of like heated conversation. And I remember my mom going into like a part of the classroom. There was like a closet opening up the closet and like pulling out and pulling out like all of these supplies and like, okay. Like, obviously you do have supplies, but there was, so that was my first kind of thing with, um, I didn't, you know, have the terminology of racism, but Mm -hmm. early on being able to identify that things in the world are separated in terms of, you know, some, some things are only for some people, whether that's money or whether that's struggle or jobs or just certain things. So that was my first experience early on. And then I would say, Mentally, like, you know, as I'm in my mid 40s right now, mentally without even knowing, I began to realize that I was falling into place. You know, there's so many systems and structures that have been intentionally set up. And so now that I'm in my mid 40s, I'm actually at a point now where I've been for the last couple of years, but actually undoing those false beliefs, those false stories and like rebuilding my own narrative. And so financially, when you're growing up little, you know, that can have a major, major, major effect on your future trajectory. It's I think of it as like that scenario where there's an elephant that has been chained, you know, there's a chain around its ankle for so long, and then that chain is removed. And then the elephant doesn't even know it's free because it's been, you know, trained (laughs) to still think, you know, that this chain is still around its ankle. So Um, so yeah, so that has been like my early on experiences and then how that has affected me, you know, later on in life by just falling into that, you know, those intentional structures and systems and then realizing that that is, um, that doesn't have to be my trajectory. Yeah. You brought up so many good points and I'm glad that you're just now realizing that this doesn't have to be your life forever and that these systems that were in place to harm you as a child don't have to be your present or your future, but it takes a lot of self-awareness and growth to combat that trauma and those experiences. So I really applaud you for saying, you know, this happened to me, but this is not going to be who I am now or in the future. And when I was listening to you talk about your first experience with racism as a child, I was thinking of this Twitter thread that I recently read. And, you know, as in combat of, you know, people saying, oh, we shouldn't teach critical race theory in schools. And then people were saying, well, when's the last time, you know, when's the first time you experienced racism? And so many people of Mm -hmm. color were saying when they were a kid in elementary school or younger Mm -hmm. and becoming aware Mm -hmm. for the first time that they were, quote, different than other people. And it was such a heartbreaking and illuminating thread for me to read, especially as a white person, because, yeah, I personally don't know that experience, but I can imagine how difficult and terrible that must be as a kid to just kind of live your life. And then at a certain age, very early on, you become very aware that the world is different for you and the world is made different. And the fact that they don't have art supplies for you, I mean, that's awful. And, you know, you start seeing these small ways that add up to these big feelings. Yeah. 
and, and feelings yeah, of ex- yeah. exclusion and that all adds up and and the elephant example that you just mentioned was so beautiful and heartbreaking and I think that's what a lot of people are experiencing when they're trying to let go of the trauma of racism and poverty is how can I actually allow myself to feel free because I've been trapped and chained for so long. Yeah. 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 And just also just to emphasize when, you know, when we're, I mean, in kindergarten, we're like five and six, like that is just such a young, tender age. (laughs) I mean, that is so young to have your first experience with feeling separated from the world or that things are different. Yeah. You haven't even built your identity yet. And that kind of identity shift has already been created for you. And you have to really do a lot of kind of inner child healing work when you are trying to move past that to say, like, I want to be the person who should have been there for my inner child. I want to be the person, you know, who would never do something like that to someone else and to be able to move past that. And so thank you for sharing your experience and your childhood. And you've also experienced a devastating um, death of, of your husband from H1N1. You know, you became a widow at age 38 and are now a single mom. I'm curious, you know, I've had a few other widows on the show, but something that I haven't asked that I'm curious is what do people not understand about becoming a widow that you'd like to share with others that you hope that they would understand? The thing that I would like to share is that people, of course, are aware of the primary loss, you know, of that person losing their spouse or their partner, their friend. So people are very aware, aware of the primary loss. However, I've had other conversation with widows and we agree on this. The people that I've talked to is that what people don't realize is that there are so many secondary losses Mm. that are experienced on a daily basis, you know, from like the bed that you once shared to the cafe down the street that you got your coffee to relationships with family and friends to like major milestones to a song that you might hear. There are just constant daily and weekly secondary losses that can be, um, you know, that are very powerful, very triggering, very overwhelming. So I think that a lot of people, um, especially kind of like in the, in the United States have this thing of, you know, like after the one year, you know, you should be better after a year or it's time to move on or, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, that people say these different things, but they don't realize a lot of those secondary losses and how painful it is. So it's like you, you know, you lose your spouse, your partner, but there's so many other losses that you experience on a daily in the beginning for me. And then, you know, weekly basis. Yeah. You brought up so many good points. And I think those secondary losses can all add up and be almost more triggering and consuming than the initial larger primary loss. And, you know, I think we have a funny way of dealing with grief in the United States, especially because it's a feeling where you feel completely stuck and paralyzed and it's almost all consuming. And it's like, how can I move forward? But life keeps going on without you and people, you know, especially under the realm of capitalism, expect you to keep moving on, showing up, going to work. And it's like, we don't have the proper time to acknowledge the bereavement process, grief, what's going on. And 
I think the thing about grief is that it's always on its own time. So this kind of, you know, move on or after a year, you should be better. It's like, okay, these are maybe careless benchmarks that are doing more harm than good. Because the thing is, it'll take as long as it takes. And as anyone that's experienced any level of grief, whether it's a death or a different kind of loss, it comes in waves. There are probably times when you think you're feeling better, you're feeling good, and then there can be an emotional landmine that sets you back all day because suddenly you're very triggered, you're very upset, you're constantly reminded of this particular loss. And so I hope that you know through this podcast and through sharing these stories, we can all be a little gentler and kinder with other people because we don't know what losses they're going through. We don't know what emotional landmines they're stepping on. And things take time, you know, as much time as it takes. And obviously, if you have access to therapy, to a robust family and friend network, that can certainly help. But the fact of the matter is, not everyone has access to those things. So the process can take even longer. Very true. And I would just like to say, too, that for me, it's been uh, seven years as being a widow. And recently, just last week, I was in Oaxaca, Mexico, celebrating uh, Day of the Dead, which was such an honor and privilege to be able to see that in Oaxaca. And I will just say, like, with it being seven years since my husband passed away, we were able to make an, um, an offer um, you know, to remember our loved ones. And I had been wanting to do this trip for a while to celebrate my husband. And with it even being seven years, like I've, you know, I had the tears had kind of, you know, begun to dry up a little bit. But when I was in Oaxaca and doing this celebration um, in this family's home, when I went, you know, went to make my offering, it was just like you said, those emotional landmines, like you just never know. And it's just like, you know, here comes the flood of tears and you just don't know. And I, I, I love how you said about giving some grace and it will take as long as it needs to take. And just, you know, for your listeners out there, like it's been seven years and it's still just, you know, you just you just never know <laughs> when yeah. those emotions are are, are going to come. So, oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, just lots of grace <laughs> that you were able to go to Oaxaca and experience Day of the Dead. That's actually a trip that I've been wanting to make for many years. I spent a month in Mexico City in January 2020, but was not able to go to Oaxaca during that time. But I've always been intrigued by the Day of the Dead concept and think it's a much healthier way to deal with loss than we do here in the States. So I'm so glad that you were able to get away and kind of celebrate life and celebrate love and honor loved ones who have passed in this really beautiful ceremonial way that is very communal, is very connected with other people. Whereas I feel like grief in the United States is very singular, very isolated, very um, kind of separated. Yes, yes. I I feel such an honor and such a privilege um, and so much gratitude <laughs> to have experienced that. I highly, highly recommend it. And it is absolutely beautiful. And it was a life-changing experience. Very different than United States way of <laughs> of of grieving and mourning and and death. Very different. Yeah, oh, I love that. I love that. Maybe I will have to go one day and honor my grandpa who was ninety seven when he passed. And actually, he passed when I was in Mexico City. Um, so oh. <laughs> maybe that will be my future trip. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> 
So I'm curious, how did becoming a widow affect your financial life and how can others protect themselves? Because obviously no one's anticipating becoming a widow. Like people hopefully prepare for the potentiality of divorce because it's far more common and it happens, but no one goes into marriage thinking like, oh, I'm going to be a widow. So, you know, what was the impact on your financial life and how can others protect themselves just in case? Because unfortunately we never know when someone's time is, is coming. Yeah. So I had, a, you know, we had thought we were doing everything right. You know, we had uh, gotten married and then we had the, you know, two kids. And so I had designed my finances around having two incomes. And at the time we had quote unquote, two good jobs. We both were working um, for the city of Seattle and that changed overnight. So I quickly realized that it's all up to me to make everything happen. And that was a huge amount of stress. So initially I panicked and, um, you know, I went ahead and obtained a master's degree. So I was like, what can I do to know that I can always have a job? So that was what I did first. But mm-hmm. I would say, of course, you know, to have a savings and to have insurance and, you know, to, you know, maybe have like a side business that you can kind of always rely on. But honestly, the thing that I would really, really stress is to have great relationships. You never know when you will need someone's help and that the people will get you through that, whether that's family or friends or a counselor. So of course, have, you know, the the thing that we all should have, you know, savings, insurance, a way to generate, you know, some extra income. Mm-hmm. But honestly, and truthfully, have great relationships. Like you just never know when you will need somebody's help, that has been actually the most helpful. I remember I was coaching with um, a woman for something uh, a couple of years ago related to business. And I'll never forget what she said. And she said that abundance comes from people. Mm. And I just, I, I agree with her <laughs> so much on that. There have been so many people, you know, outside of having savings, outside of insurance, Um, but so many people that have helped me. And I'm not talking necessarily just about cooking dinner or, you know, like a monetary thing, but, but just people have really, really, really helped me. So I would just say to have great relationships, you know, as much as you can with people that has what really helped me over the last seven years. I love that you mentioned that because yes, I definitely agree. People should have life insurance. People should have a will. People should have their own money in their own bank account, or at least passwords of the other person's money and make sure that they have access to that. But yeah, having access to people and relationships can really help you during these difficult times. I mean, they can literally lift you up emotionally, help you with emotional labor, help you with logistics, really be there for you. And and that reminds me of something that Ken Honda in the book, um, Happy Money, he wrote that he's not worried about going broke or losing all of his money like some people are, because he knows that if things were to hit the fan tomorrow, He has, you know, dozens of people he can call and he could stay on their couch for a couple of weeks. He could have food like he has built a network of people with strong enough relationships that he can do that. And when I read that, I was like, wow, that's such a paradigm shift for how we think about kind of financial ruin and and relying on on people, because so many people think of scarcity as like, oh, my gosh, I lose all my money. What am I going to do? 
but you know, he has this whole different perspective of like, I'm not worried because mm-hmm. I have so many people around me that I know could take care of me while I get back on my feet again. And hearing you say that just kind of reiterates that point in my experience. And so I know we're all busy. I know we're all tired. We're overworked, but really cultivate those relationships with your friends and with your colleagues yes. and with people in your community, because it's during these really trying times that they could really lift you up in more ways than one. Yes. Yes. I can't tell you. There's been countless amount of times where people have helped me to find the resources that I need, you know, you're just sharing, you know, information or, um, yeah, people. I agree. I agree with, I'm going to have to read that book. Yes. <laughs> it's an incredible that, book. Yeah. <laughs> that is my best advice for sure is it, you know, to definitely surround yourself with great people and have those great relationships to help you access what you need. Definitely check out the mental health and wealth show podcast interview with Ken Honda, as well as read his book, happy money. It was a game changer for me. And one of my favorite podcast episodes to date. I know I, I mentioned his name quite a lot on my other interviews, (laughs) just because it really was one of those books that is just so life-changing like paradigm shift in your mind around your money mindset and just enjoying life you know yeah oh so good yeah so I'm curious you know what mental health practices or tools have you used to rebuild your resilience and confidence when I think about tools um three things come to mind as kind of like the umbrella and one is coaching um lots of coaching And also counseling would be another thing. And then traveling. So those are like my three umbrellas. But underneath that, that, yeah. And then underneath that, like I I journal every night. I get, you know, massage as much as I can. I love body work, just being able to like feel back connected into my body. Um, I've done a lot of stepping outside of my comfort zone being a solo parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. one of the things that I allow myself to do <laughs> is to fail over and over and over and over again. <laughs> it just, you know, I just accept failure as feedback. Yeah. Um, which has been huge, huge shift <laughs> is accepting failure as feedback because I learn, you know, keep learning and learning. Uh, another thing that is one of my tools is under that umbrella that I've learned from coaching is, is to allow myself to receive I have a really, really, really hard time allowing myself to receive. So mm-hmm. allowing myself to receive is another another thing that I've been able to, you know, uh, take advantage of. Um, also, you know, many there's many podcasts, many books that I have used as tools. And then just to talk again about travel, travel is something that um, is like one of my top, top, top things to do. It's almost like I get to stop and get transported to another place to experience, you know, joy and explore. And it just does wonders for me. It's almost like I'm creating, you know, creating space to be able to heal and nurture and receive and to mourn. Um, Especially in the United States, we have, you know, it's it's more busy, more fast paced. You get your three days of bereavement, you know, and I've got um, two two, you know, two sons, they were five and eight at the time, my husband passed away. So like, like you said earlier, life didn't stop. So when I'm able to travel, it's almost like I can just like escape it all and just create the space, you know, to be able to heal and nurture. Another thing that I would um, 
say that has really helped is having core values. This is something that I have established via life coaching. And so having established my core values has really helped me with making decisions quickly mm-hmm. and uh, kind of like how I want my life to be. So like I have five core values and one is beauty and not like a, you know, aesthetic, but like beauty in the world uh, to have freedom, excellence in everything I do, my health and then self-trust. So it just helps when you, when you've gone from having a two parent household where you can always rely you know, on somebody to help you make decisions. So now I look at my core values and I'm like, okay, does this align with my core values? It just really helps as a quick kind of way to be able to say, does this align with my core values? Because, you know, um, being able to have a partner, you know, every night previously, you know, to talk to about, you know, should we do this or should we do that? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, be able to call and, you know, bounce ideas off, you know, that's just gone. So to be able to have, uh, core values established has also been a great tool for me. I love that. I love the idea of core values and I encourage all the listeners to come up with their top five core values for their life and look at that anytime they're making a decision. And I love that you mentioned coaching and counseling. I know we've talked about it briefly on the therapy episode before about what's the difference between coaching and counseling. A lot of coaching is kind of looking towards the future. A lot of counseling is looking towards the past and kind of untangling unhelpful patterning and conditioning. And I love that you mentioned travel as one of the ways that you are rebuilding your resilience and confidence because, you know, I spent a month in Mexico City, as I mentioned before, in January 2020, right before COVID. And I remember telling my therapist, one of the few times I feel confident is when I travel alone. And I realize it's because I have to figure out everything for myself in a new way. I have to figure out where I'm going. I have to figure out where the, you know, hotel or hostel or Airbnb is. I have to figure out the directions. I have to make new plans. And in Mexico City in, in January 2020, you know, I lived there for a month and I went to a new boxing gym, which was so intimidating because everything was in Spanish. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at Spanish, but when you're in the native country, they speak so much faster than you realize. And so I was able to understand about every third word, which was intimidating. And actually one of the more hysterical experiences was one day I accidentally went to a sparring class. I thought it was a regular boxing class. (laughs) And I got my ass beat by the 16 year old girl. That is the day that I learned the Spanish word for disappointed, which is decepcionada. (laughs) Because I got hit in the face by this girl and I looked so crestfallen. And the teacher was like, Estas decepcionada? And I was just like, uh huh. I don't know what he was saying, but I was just like, I'm sure I I am whatever you're thinking I am. (laughs) And I looked at the teacher and I was like, yep. I, I was disappointed, but, you know, it was really difficult at the time because I was so out of my comfort zone, literally and physically and mentally, but now I can laugh at it. And like I said, something that I told my therapist is like, I just feel so confident when I travel alone because you're forced out of your comfort zone. You're forced into trying out a new identity and to get away from old routines and old patterns. So I think that's such a great 
you know, way to put it. And I love that's been one of your tools as well. Yes, I agree with you. Everything that you said. And I know very little Spanish. So I know probably like about 10 words and talk about building confidence. When I got back home, I just felt like invincible. Like you have no idea. Like I was in Oaxaca for four days in Mexico City, I think for five days or four. And talk about confidence building. When I got back home, I was like, I just felt like I could do anything if I could could travel in Oaxaca and Mexico City and, um, yeah, if I could, if I was able to survive that with very little Spanish, I just feel so much more confident in, in uh, my ability at home to do things. So yes. <laughs> I agree with you on the confidence building. <laughs> <laughs> love that. Love that. <laughs> so I know your husband died of H1N1, which, you know, was a previous big issue that we were dealing with. And so I'm curious now that we're in a pandemic, how has that been yeah. for you? Um, has that been triggering? Is that bringing up old emotions? Like, what are some similarities between what was happening back then and now? And how are you navigating solo parenting during a pandemic? So, yeah, it has been uh, beyond triggering, like very, very triggering. And then also at the same time, I've learned that two things can exist. So it is very triggering, but it is also allowing me to remember who we are as a family and uh, what, like what we have already um, experienced and you know what I mean? So it's like mm-hmm. this, it's, it's scary, but then it's also like we have in some ways or another um, experienced, you know, our own pandemic. So yeah, lots of anxiety, lots of panic. When in March of 2020, we were in um, New Orleans when things started to unfold mm-hmm. in Washington state. So it was, it was, uh, you know, we were traveling and it was kind of like, it, you know, felt like Washington was kind of like ground zero in terms of the you know, United States and um, very scary. I told my sons we need to re- redo New Orleans. So very, very, very scary to be thinking that another virus, um, you know, has arrived and is uh, taking taking lives. At the time with the H1N1, I wasn't quite now aware of its impact. Um, But, you know, now looking back, I realize, you know, that that was very uh, serious virus as well. So, um, and in terms of parenting, I'm learning not to take myself too seriously with parenting and to give Mm -hmm. myself lots and lots of grace. I used to, you know, want things to be like perfect and, you know, and and now that is just a dirty word in my vocabulary. I just, I, I am, you know, recovering perfectionists have people have said, but, but just learning not to take myself too seriously and allowing myself lots of grace and that I am, you know, doing the best that I can do with, with parenting. And so, so we've all been, of course, in quarantine. So we've all, you know, we haven't really ventured out too much. And so now that we're um, all vaccinated, we're now allowing ourselves to have more space. My sons are pretty much teenagers right now, almost 13 and 16. And so allowing more space now and then allowing um, myself too to have more solo trips and alone time just for us to be able to have that space as a family. But um, but yeah, I would just say lots of grace and not taking myself too seriously with parenting. And I've kind of always had this thing with ever since my husband passed away, like if if we are all like alive and breathing at the end of the day, then it is a success. I'm not concerned about 
you know, if there's dishes or if things haven't been vacuumed, although I would like it to be, but if we are like alive and well and breathing, then, then, then it's a successful day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually one of the silver linings of grief is that it can really reset your life so that you truly understand what's important and what's not like, yes, having a clean house and clean dishes would be nice, but yeah, really the important thing is that you're healthy and and you're alive. And so I love that you've had that kind of realization. You're like, that's okay. As long as we're healthy and alive, everything is good. And I absolutely love (laughs) what you're saying about not taking yourself too seriously with parenting, because I think more people could benefit from that type of mindset. And I just want to clarify for the listeners that I think we conflate this idea of like, this is a really important job. And because it's really important, like obviously parenting is the most important job because this is the most important job that I have to be really serious about it. And I think you're actively saying that you don't have to do that, that there can still be an air of lightness of not too seriousness of, you know, adding some humor and lightness to the world and to the process. And I'm sure that's helped your enjoyment as well as your execution of parenting as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and now that my sons are pretty much almost 13 and 16, like they are their own people. I mean, like (laughs) they are their own people. They are their own, you know, they have their own ideas, thoughts and what they want to do. And yeah, I allow for lots of space for them to be able to, you know, live their lives and, and, and not be like a, I think the term is helicopter parent. So I, I let them (laughs) try and figure a lot of things out because, you know, it's just important for them to be able to, to, to know how to figure things out on their, on their own. I'm not saying, you know, I just let them do whatever, but it's just, like you said, when you experience something as traumatic as losing a spouse, like you are just, you are just not the same and things that were important, um, you know, things just shift in terms of what's important and what's not so important. So to be able to allow them to explore and adventure and kind of figure things out on their own is, is uh, really important to me. I love that. So your children were relatively young when this happened. And so I'm curious, how have you approached trying to inform them about who their dad was, their memories and their experiences, while also allowing healing? Like, how do you manage that line? Yeah, so we initially, um, well, initially when it happened, you know, trying to be, you know, air quotes, the perfect person, I, I had drug them to five different therapists trying to find a right fit. And they were just like, we, you know, we don't want to see anybody. We don't want to see it. Like, well, let's try this one. Let's try this one. Let's try this one. So initially trying to find a right therapist and, and it just, it, it just didn't work. So we did do something that's called bridges, which was through this uh, hospital in Washington state. And so that was like a group counseling thing. So the parents would be, um, you know, with groups of other parents or adults rather. And then the kids would be into different groups. And then we did that once a week for, I think about a year, you kind of have like this potluck, you know, and then you go and go, you know, with the the leader. And so we did that for about a year. And then one thing that both of my, my oldest son did camp Aaron two times. And that was like a, um, 
a weekend camping thing for kids that had lost someone. And then my younger son did it for just one weekend. And then honestly, we have, um, I've kind of left it to, um, we do lots of local getaways because um, I love to travel. So I don't know if that's helped them or not, but we still continue. I still continue to talk about their dad and like, I'm always like, oh yeah, you know, dad, you know, do you guys remember, you know, dad's favorite this or dad would have loved that or dad is so proud of you or so I, I not too much, you know, but I do, um, I do interject things that uh, are things, you know, that do you remember when dad used to do that? Or my youngest son, um, talks about it, talks about dad a, a lot more. And he'll, rem- he'll remember things, which is interesting because he was five at the time. But he'll be like, yeah, I remember when dad used to play Russell with me and pretend he was dead. Or, oh, I remember, <laughs> you know, this about that. I remember that about dad. My older son, he has um, been a little bit more reserved and private with his with his grieving process. And that's, that's you know, totally fine. But he, he doesn't talk so much about it. But he still remembers things and occasionally will but so just allowing grace and space for that um with them but I still you know definitely keep talking about that and keep the memories alive my husband was a um he had many many books and so we still have like his books all around the house and his movies and things like that so um and like Halloween was one of his favorite holidays and so we still, you know, do like a lot of the Halloween decorations. And then the day that he um, passed away, a couple of those years, we have gotten together with friends and family to like celebrate and and talk about it. And to him, my husband's name was James. And so we usually have some some Jameson whiskey as well. So um, yeah, so just, you know, I think everybody probably has their own way of of doing that but and then also for me has been to do this um you know helping other widows as well so yeah I love that you mentioned these kind of rituals around grieving that you created and also I think it's really important that you mentioned that your two children are are grieving in different ways and I think that's important to realize that that's normal and okay and you know that everyone has their grieving process and their grieving timeline and that can be completely different among children and adults, of course. And so I'm glad you're, you're bringing that to light with this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you're helping other women who have also experienced loss. So I'm curious, I'd love to share your work with our listeners and also where can people find you? Oh, sure. So I do help widows exclusively rebuild after loss and remember who they are and what they're capable of while including lots of rest <laughs> while doing that. So I have um, a podcast that's called the Hungry Widow Podcast. And then I also do coaching for widows. And then in 2022, I'm actually going to be adding a large part of the, of, of my business is going to include travel. So in January 22, I'll be kicking off my first uh, travel retreat in the Seattle area. So either by listening on the Hunger Widow podcast or visiting my website, TavanaGivens.com. Love that. That's amazing. I'm so excited for you and everything that you're doing. And I know that you are sharing your pain in service of others and helping others get through these 
difficult times. And I'm so glad that you've been on the show to share your story and your experiences. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me, Melanie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.